No. I'm not worried at all. I rely on God, Allah. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Inshallah, we want to talk about one of the longest lasting Islamic empires in history, an empire that lasted six centuries. And at its height, uh, at the end of Sultan Murad III, uh, it amassed uh, almost 20 million square kilometers. What is this empire? This empire is the Ottoman Empire. Uh, as I mentioned, at its apex, between the year 1575 to 1595, the Hijri calendar, 982 to 1003, it had over 2.8 million square kilometers of territory in Europe, over 4.8 million square kilometers in Asia, and over 12.2 million square kilometers in Africa. And if you look at the sum total uh, in different times throughout history, uh, there was almost 23 million square kilometers under its territory. At its height, it was at the gates of Vienna, Hungary, it had Hungary, Balkans, Greece, Ukraine, portions of the Middle East like Iraq, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, North Africa, and a large parts of the Arabian Peninsula. And then from its apex, this empire began to decline. Uh, around the time of Sultan Salim II, many of the Sultan, the leadership, the elite class started to enjoy and become completely engulfed in the luxuries of their empire. And so they would spend the time within the luxuries of the palace instead of taking a leadership role in battle. Uh, instead of uh, being in the heads of government or taking a, a role in leading government, they would be uh, within the palaces enjoying the luxuries. Instead of dealing with uh, governments, foreign governments taking a leadership role there or defending Islam on the world stage as re being the representative, the Khalifa, uh, they started to become more seclusionary. And this this type of seclusion was endemic to Sultan Ahmed, the, who between 1603 to 1617 uh, ended the 30-year or 300-year, sorry, tradition of the princes fighting for the throne. So there's this process of trying to keep uh, the leadership competitive or trying to have the best suited leaders for the role to be the Sultan but he ended this practice and so when they wanted to have a sultan who now started becoming more and more of just a figurehead almost like royalty and just a figurehead uh, a government official would come to the harem this uh complex this uh, palace complex and out of a gilded room select a sultan to now uh be their representative 
Now, as the Ottoman Empire started to stagnate, the European Empire started to expand and started to grow. The Europeans started to discover the New World, North America, Central America, South America. And with these discoveries, a lot more gold and silver started to come into their empire. And so this influx of American silver, for example, caused a high amount of inflation within the Ottoman Empire. So in the year 1580, one gold coin was equivalent to 60 silver coins. Ten years later, 1591 gold coin was equivalent to 120 silver coins. And by 1640, one gold coin was equivalent to 250 silver coins. Uh, as the time progressed, 1700s, Sultan Salim I, he gave France control, so gave jurisdiction of uh, control over any of their French citizens within the Ottoman Empire. And also any Catholics, because France was uh, known uh, to be the representing of the Catholic religion. They gave uh, actually control of any Catholics within their empire. Uh, in 1768 to 1774, there was a devastating war with the Russians where they lost a lot of territory. It was uh, also uh, a very big strain on their treasury. Uh, they lost territory like Crimea. Uh, their treasury was depleted and they had a huge amount of debt uh, combined with, of course, some extravagant projects like Sultan Abdul Majid I's construction of extravagant palaces you had a completely depleted treasury. And then in the 1800s, many liberal reforms started to take place within the Ottoman Empire. Sultan Mahmud II, 1808 to 1839, he introduced a European style of governance and education and culture. So a lot of the clothing now uh, was replaced. The traditional Islamic and Ottoman clothing was replaced with a European style of clothing. You would see the effects within the government structures, like, for example, the army. So in the army, they actually abolished this Janissary corps or the Inkishari, and they replaced it with Nizami Jadid, this new system. Uh, he was succeeded by Abdul Majid I. 1839 to 61, 1861, and he introduced what was known as the Tanzimat, the introduction essentially of the French legal system and a lot of these liberal reforms within the Ottoman Empire. He was succeeded by Abdul Aziz, Sultan Abdul Aziz, 1861 to 1876. Now, what's significant are these Tanzimat reforms. So these liberal reforms that they imported uh, from Europe to compete with Europe. So uh, what this was, was uh, to now take away uh, power again from the Sultan, give it to the Vizier, so who was known, uh, the Grand Vizier was known as Sadr al-Azm, and um, a, a, a particular figure uh, who uh, had this title was known as Mehdet Pasha. And what they would do is they started marginalizing any of the religious leaders, the Shuyukh, and the Sultan himself, and they tried to undermine the Sultan. And so, of course, uh, this line of thinking was very flawed from the beginning, this whole idea, this paradigm that we've lost our core values, we've lost our core principles. And so by losing our core values and our core principles, 
we've now started to decay. We've started to uh, now going go into the state of loss. Now, instead of going back to the core values, the core principles that made you successful in the first place, why don't we copy what other people are doing that made them uh, successful, that uh, had their uh, empire rise? And of course, their empires, so the European powers, uh, the reason it worked for them was because they came out of a certain, a certain set of circumstances, okay? Coming from the dark ages, going through these liberal reforms. So that was a way for them to advance and progress their society. But that's not necessarily uh, something that would help the Ottomans. And we'll see uh, what type of effect that did have for the Ottoman Empire. And so the Grand Vizier, uh, he uh, took part in this conspiracy to actually kill uh, Sultan Abdul Aziz. And uh, it was falsely attributed that he committed suicide, but later investigation by Sultan Abdul Hamid II revealed that uh, it was not a suicide, but it was actually uh, a, uh, a planned murder. Uh, he was, Sultan Abdul Aziz was succeeded by Murad V, and he, when he took over, he continued his process of liberalization within uh, the Ottoman uh, government and cultural structures. And he actually had a very good relationship with uh, the uh, British crown prince. And you would see now a lot of influence from Western educated um, government officials uh, within the Ottoman Empire. And uh, you had this movement known as the Young Turks who thought that the Tanzimat reforms weren't liberal enough. They didn't go far uh, enough. And Murad V eventually had a nervous breakdown and he had to abdicate the throne. Now, he was su succeeded uh, by a man who probably extended the life of the Ottoman Empire uh, uh, because at that time it was almost ready to collapse. So he probably gave it a renewed sense of life and extended its life uh, from the edge of death. And that's Sultan Abdul Hamid II. And, you know, he ruled from 1876 to 1909, so 33 years. And he starts this process of islah, this renewal and revival within the Ottoman Empire. So, again, just to encapsulate, internally, there's struggles. Internally, there's dissension. Internally, there's decay. Uh, they have a debt of 300 million liras. You have uh, revolts, like I said, with grand viziers. Uh, you have European sympathizers, people who are actually advocating for European influence within the Ottoman Empire. And then externally, you have the Russian, the British and the French uh, threatening, taking over territories, battles, skirmishes and, um, you know, strategic planning to uh, cause the Ottoman Empire uh, to become even more and more weak. And you have these revolts that are occurring. So you have Thrace, Macedonia, uh, Arab rebels, Armenia, Kurdish revolts. So all these different revolts within their empire. Now, Abdul Hamid II was a man to rise to the challenge. He was a man who was capable of dealing with what would seem unsurmountable odds. And so he um, he he actually disintegrated this Mab'uthan 
this Ottoman parliament uh, early in his time. So he, uh, he, he caused that to come to an end. And so he took a more direct role. And he was someone who was suited to take on this uh, direct role after he dissolved the this council. Because uh, he's bringing back, again, uh, a different paradigm, a different sense of what uh, this – that would save the Ottoman Empire. And uh, his actions speak for themselves because when you look at, for example, the Tanzim of the reforms, you have alcohol being widely drunk and spread, okay, uh, especially within uh, the city centers, okay. But here's a man uh, who had a deep love for Islam. Uh, he was willing to put in the work. Uh, he worked 14-hour days. Uh, he would take care of a lot of his own sh uh, chores, his own tasks. He would fix his own shoes. He was very frugal in spending. Uh, he actually was able to reduce the debt, the state debt, by one by to down to one tenth of its original debt. So from 300 million to 30 million liras and because of this love of islam uh he wanted to actually um establish a um pan-islamic organization so even with countries that weren't part of the ottoman empire he wanted to unite the ummah on the basis of islam so he brought back the title of the khalifa and um he uh he, he wanted uh even uh, countries like Iran to be part of this pan-Islamic organization, okay? So even though they may disagree on Aqidah, uh, even though there may be a disagreement on some uh, of these issues, he felt that at least politically being together as Muslims would give them a sense of uh, power, a sense of self-respect, uh, the ability to determine uh, their own uh, future within this geo political landscape and uh, you know as I mentioned before he was a very dynamic personality he was someone who was also known to be a poet uh, he was a, a wrestler he was well educated and he didn't shun European uh, society by any means completely like he went and he visited he traveled to Europe uh, he saw you know what they were about but he wanted to end this a uh, backwards practice of the 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 Sultan being secluded from the world. And so this royal imprisonment, uh, this practice of like, you know, the, 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 the royal family, the sultan being like almost imprisoned within these uh, harems, uh, he, he uh, went to end that. And uh, his love for Islam or his love for the Omar to bring it uh, together showed with a lot of the projects that he initiated. So in 1908, imagine at that time, he funded an Islamic university in Beijing, China. Okay, so the capital of China, and uh, we all know the relationship right now China has with uh, many Muslims in its territories. Uh, he actually fund, funded an Islamic uni uh, university uh, there. Uh, he built a railway from Hejaz, so from Medina uh, to Istanbul. So you'd have this uh, rail system now that's going from Istanbul to Medina with one of the primary objectives actually is to help 
the people for Hajj travel within the Ottoman Empire to be able to go to Hejaz and from Hejaz come out uh, to uh, the rest of the Ottoman Empire, Turkey, other uh, Muslim lands. And he took a very principled stance when it came to Palestine. So um, a man by the name of Theodore Herzl, who is the architect of the modern Zionist state known as Israel, uh, he was an Austri Austrian uh, man who was a, a PhD in law. Uh, he wanted to establish a Jewish state in Palestine. And so what he did is he made this very lucrative offer to Sultan Abdul Hamid II. And he said, listen, you have a lot of revolts within the Ottoman Empire. We're going to help quell those revolts. Uh, we're going to help protect your ships in European waters from pirates from being harassed. Uh, we're going to, um, you know, suppress uh, these other nations within like the Armenians who are causing issues. We're going to help su suppress those rebellions. Uh, we'll settle your, your the rest of your state debt. And on top of that, we'll give you five million gold liras. Okay. So very tempting offer. Okay. And so what was the response of Sultan Abdul Hamid II? So this, I believe, is a test of his sincerity of whether or not he truly believed uh, about in, in Islam. He truly believed in pan-Islamic ideas that he was preaching. Was he truly going to practice what he was preaching? Because oftentimes what happens is uh, a person, when they call for Islam or they call for Islamic unity or they do some type of revival, uh, it's they can be accused of what of trying to pander of trying just to do it superficially for political points, right? It can be a person can be accused. I think people have been you know today are accused of that as well to try to get political points. So I believe uh, his statement uh, reflects somebody who actually is not doing this for uh, worldly political reasons, just to preserve and to expand his uh, sphere of influence and power. But rather, it shows that he truly believes in Ummah, he truly believes in the core principles of Islam. So he responded by saying, our ancestors sacrificed their lives for Palestine. So he could never give up one inch of it. Okay, And he predicted that if uh, they got um, you know, rid of him, he predicted that if they got rid of him, that uh, they would be able to have Palestine for free. So he is rejecting huge amounts of money and wealth and power and prestige. Uh, but he realizes because he's doing it as a principal stance, um, you know, the next person to come take over uh, that um, if, if they don't do it on that same idea, that same principled basis, they would be giving it away for free. They'd be willing to even give it away for free because, you know, Theodore Herzl, he, he made this offer many, many times, many, many times he made this offer. And uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid, one thing uh, we should note what's happening on a world stage too, when he's talking about pan-Islamic unity, when he's talking about core Islamic principles, when he's talking about, um, you know, Quran and Sunnah and trying to bring back uh, a lot of the ideas that uh, the Ottoman Empire initially was established upon, you have uh, a different, um, uh, you could say, uh, now wave of ideas uh, flowing through Europe and Russia. 
Okay, so you have now these atheistic liberal ideas that are that are coming across uh, many of the European countries. You have uh, atheistic ideas coming from Russia. Remember, now Russia was originally Orthodox Christian, and then they became uh, atheistic and communist. Okay, uh, and they transitioned into becoming the Soviet Union. So this, you know, uh, Bolshevik revolution comes in and uh, takes away this orthodoxy, this Christianity, a lot of the uh, the values that they had before. You have now a weakening of uh, the church in European countries, and you have this liberal secularization, a lot of the atheist uh, values, and then. Um, uh, you see this now permeating itself within uh, Muslim countries and Muslim organizations within these countries. So you'd have, uh, you know, organizations with the, with, uh, the title Al-Fatah with it. So Egypt Al-Fatah, the Al-Fatah in, in Levant and in Turkey Al-Fatah as well, which would later on became more commonly known as the, uh, uh, the uh, Young Turkish Party or the Young Turk Party. Uh, young Turks, and um, it's spreading this uh, th this idea of uh, liberalization and atheism. And then on top of that, you have the British and French uh, who are trying to stoke Arab nationalism. And so you actually see that reflective now in some projects and initiatives within uh, a lot of these uh, Arab lands. So you have like this, uh, uh, this Arabic newspaper, Al-Muqaddam, Al-Ahram, uh, who is trying to be a proponent of these nationalistic views. Mm -hmm. So um, in 1909, this culmination of all this opposition, liberalization, atheism, internally, nationalism to weaken the state, uh, causes now elements within the government and the army and this uh, secret movement of young Turks to depose Sultan Abdul Hamid II. And so a delegation of four men came to inform Sultan Abdul Hamid II of his deposition, uh, and it was led by a man by the name of Emmanuel Carasso. And this person actually would later on collaborate with Italy in the Italian-Libyan War. So the Ottomans were actually supporting the Libyans in this war, and at a critical stage, uh, this man uh, conspired to have 30,000 Ottoman troops withdraw uh, giving a devastating blow to the Libyans and so to help the spread of the colonization, this uh, one of these colonial powers, Italy, to take over and cause great losses amongst the Libyans. And so Sultan Abdul Hamid II, he lived for nine years in isolation and the rest, uh, the remnants of this Ottoman Empire were dismantled and it was given in the hands of these young Turks and specifically mm -hmm. a man by the name of Mustafa Kemal, uh, or Mustafa Ataturk, he was the architect of the modern Turkish state. And so the Ottoman Empire ended in 1924. And so a few things to keep in mind uh, of note. One is that, okay, this is all this is happening internally, but also lo look at the backdrop as we see this continue. So we have Sultan Abdul Hamid II, uh, they bring him to deposition, but then we have these great world events happening at the same time, but behind the scenes of these world events, 
there's also further strategic planning to dismantle the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottoman Empire in World War One actually initially tried to join the alliance, okay, but they were refused, uh, you know, uh, uh, the ability to join the alliance, and so they joined the Central Powers in October of 1914. So, uh, you know, at this stage where they had nowhere else to, you know, ally with, they allied with the Central Powers. And the British already had a plan to dissolve the Ottoman Empire. So that under the British rule, they actually controlled Egypt. They were able to take that away from the Ottomans in 1818. And also they were ruling over India in 1857. And so their strategy was to turn the Arabs within the Ottoman Empire against the uh, Ottomans. And so if we look at, for example, uh, famous figures like Lawrence of Arabia, okay, and there's, you know, movies based on his life, uh, he was able to stoke the sense of nationalism within Arab tribes and um, it also trained them to how they can revolt and rebel mm -hmm. against the Ottoman Empire. Uh, uh, and uh, this British high commissioner to Egypt, the man who the name of McMahon, he uh, uh, actually uh, allied with, uh, or he corresponded with a man by the name of Sharif ibn Hussein ibn Ali, who was the governor of Mecca at that time. And so he communicated with him and, say, and said to him, listen, we will give you an Arab empire. You're going to be the king of the Arabs. And we will give you Hejaz, so Arabian Peninsula, and Syria, so Levant, is going to be un in your kingdom. So this Arab empire is going to be under your rule. And so he's stoking him to uh, revolt against the Ottoman Empire so he can have his own kingdom. And so uh, if we look at, uh, you know, how the, the, the level that they went to help craft this division and stoke this nationalism, uh, it's very amazing, actually. And it's very strategic and it's very planned and we can see the remnants of it today. So they actually designed a flag for the Arab rebels which had three horizontal bars and a triangle to the left. And actually that flag became a model for the flags in Jordan, Syria, Palestine, Sudan, and Kuwait. And I remember uh, as a youth uh, being very young, uh, mm -hmm. but at the same time, you know, you're idealistic, you love the Ummah, but not sometimes you're not educated. And that's important to be educated about history and about your deen as well. I remember uh, commenting to uh, one of the brothers saying that, listen, you know what would be cool is to have a shirt that says Ummah on it and then show all the flags of all the uh, nations that are Muslim, right? And they said, you know what, actually, that's the source of sadness when you look at all these different nationalistic flags because that shows the source of division, how we were completely divided. You know what I mean? Because we were, you know, it's an ummah, like the Khilafah, the Muslim world is supposed to be uh, united. This is the vision of uh, of what a Khilafah should be or what an ummah should be. And so uh, before Sharif, so they're saying this to Sharif Hussein, promising him an Arab kingdom. Uh, simultaneously, they have alternative plans. The British and France have alternative plans. Uh, and so they planned uh, in, between 1915 and 1916, uh, they had two diplomats by the name of Mark Sykes representing Britain and uh, Francois-Georges Picot of France. Mm -hmm. uh, they decided they, they secretly met these two representatives of the British and the French to decide the, face, uh, the fate of the post-Ottoman 
uh, and Arab world. Okay, so even before World War One ended, they're already planning how they're going to uh, basically uh, have the Ottoman Empire come to an end, divide up the Ottoman Empire, and how they're going to divide up the Arab world. Okay, so even though a kingdom was promised to the Arabs, uh, to Sharif Hussein, uh, they're already planning to betray him. Now, uh, according to this Sykes-Picot agreement, uh, the French and British would divide the Arab world amongst themselves. So Britain would get Iraq, Kuwait, and Jordan, and France would get uh, Syria, Lebanon, and southern Turkey. Okay. And uh, if you look at the way that they would even divide the borders, mm-hmm. like a ruler, okay, like the, the way that they would divide up the empire, it's like someone's taking a protractor and a ruler and just dividing things up as if a knife is being uh, cut to divide, uh, you know, the, these Muslim lands. And uh, it's uh, at this point, I'm reminded of the hadith of Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, when he said that the nations will come upon you from every side just as diners gather around a mean dish. And so, you know, as somebody's calling around a dish and people say, come, come eat from this, and they slice it up and they start, you know, serving it to people. And so the Sahaba, عنهم, they asked the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is it because we're going to be few in number at that time? Because the Sahaba are thinking from their paradigm. They're thinking from their perspective. They're thinking maybe the days of Mecca when they were a few, you know, just like, uh, you know, a, almost just like a hundred maybe, uh, or even less than that earlier on, you know, when you had just a few dozen. And uh, they would be oppressed, they would be subjugated to all sorts of torture and harm and abuse. And they had strong Iman, but they just didn't have the means to really fight and defend themselves. And so they were exploited. In Mecca, there was a boycott. Uh, so they were financially exploited, they were physically exploited, they were politically exploited. So they're thinking, are we going to become so reduced in numbers? Because they're thinking Islam means something. Being a Muslim means something. Uh, truly having Iman has has a deep meaning associated with it, right? So they're thinking from that perspective that they're just so small in number that, uh, you know, people are just able to overwhelm them. You know, is, is that the reasoning for it? Because in their minds, they could never imagine that they would have the the hearts of cowards or the heart the hearts that aren't connected uh, with primarily serving the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay. He said, no, it's not because you're going to be few in number. Actually, you're going to be very numerous, but you're going to be like the scum on the ocean, on the sea. And there will be feebleness in your hearts and the fear of you in the hearts of your enemies will be removed. And why will that occur? It's because of hubba dunya, because if you're a love of dunya, that's you, you primarily uh, prioritize the dunya over everything because you love it so much. Hubba dunya kariyat al and you fear death. Okay? If you fear death, that means you're actually working everything to establish your home, your permanent home in this dunya. When we know that this dunya is a means, we work in these means, but we know that the everlasting home is in the akhirah, right? So it's a different paradigm. It's a different mindset. You you know, it's hard to like overcome and bully somebody who has that type of mindset. It's hard to defeat somebody who has that type of uh, mindset. And so our Rasulullah says, no, it's actually the condition of your hearts that's going to cause this. 
it's a state of your heart that will actually cause uh you know, this type of weakness, this type of exploitation, this type of situation where two men can sit in a room, take a map, divide up the ummah like a cake and just start serving it to each other. And uh, they relegated in their agreement uh, or they kind of put a pin in it that Palestine would be uh, considered for Zionist ambition. And this became more for formalized uh, and it was allocated to the Zionist movement with the Balfour Declaration. Now, the Ottoman Empire ended in a tragedy. Like, uh, this is such a tragic end to one of the longest lasting Islamic empires in history, one of the greatest empires in history. The only empire that was able to uh, take over Constantinople were for hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, people had tried to take over Constantinople, but it was this empire, as we discussed in the previous podcast of how Hagia Sophia became a masjid, they were able to have this within their empire. They were able to expand their empire to such a great lengths. And so uh, this, this, no one can deny, uh, especially a Muslim, how tragic it came to an end, especially of how the Sultan was treated, Sultan Abdul Hamid II, who had you know, this deep love for Islam and Muslims and initiated projects as a reflection of that. Uh, and uh, to see like it gutted, right? All these Islamic principles just gutted. Uh, you know, when uh, Mustafa Kamal took over, uh, he had many Islamophobic principles and policies that he instituted. Like uh, it was a deep uh, seated hatred of Islam. So he didn't completely eliminate Islam completely because the idea was to have a transitory Islam. So what he wanted to do was he, he weaken Islam so much, uh, take out, make it as symbolic as possible, take out any of the real influence of Islam. So take it out of the court system, take it out of the education system, uh, take it out of any of the government system. Uh, and then all the symbols like any of the practices weaken it, or marginalize it. So for uh, Muslim men, they had to dress a certain way or they were pressured to dress in a European dress. You couldn't wear an imama publicly. Uh, they uh, tried to take out the, you know, the Turkish fez, the hat that they would wear, the um, uh, Muslim dress for Muslims, the veil, the hijab. Uh, you know, it wasn't all, it wasn't completely banned, but you can go into government institutions. Uh, you can have government jobs. You can go into universities. Uh, you know, many Muslim women, actually Turkish women uh, later on, and I, I witnessed this myself during my university years, they couldn't go to university in the land that they were born in. So they had to come to Canada. They had to come to America. They had to come to Europe if they wanted higher education because what would also happen is that you would have more practice of Islam in the rural areas, so the countryside. The city centers, they had more of a strict grip on it, but you'd have more of Islamic practices. But imagine you're this, uh, you know, this young Turkish girl wants to get an education, you're getting educated, and now it's time to go to university. The universities are in the cities. You can't go now to a university, an Islamic university. You have to go outside of the university. And guess what would happen when they would come back you know, to visit their family in the airports, they would be interrogated for hours. 
So if you think it's bad now after 9-11 where you have many Muslims, anytime they were flying, they're on these no-fly lists, they're interrogated for hours and hours and hours, uh, our Turkish sisters were, were suffering this for decades even before 9-11. Uh, you know, the type of harassment, imprisonment that they would go through and they would demonstrate outside of universities and, you know, they would beat them up, they would round them, they would put them in prisons. Uh, and so this is a, these are all remnants of the policies that uh, Mustafa Kamal had. He tried to eliminate the sources of knowledge. Remember, our Iman is based on Alm, based on Dalil. Uh, you know, this is why Iman remains so strong in Muslim countries and societies today is because it's linked to knowledge. It's not linked to whims and desires or the zeitgeist of the time. It's, in, it's linked to uh, our Quran and our Sunnah, the writings of our scholars and so forth. That's why Arabic language has such a strong role within that. And uh, these people, uh, they understood this. These, li these liberal reformers understood this. So they wanted to gut out the Arabic language from their society. So previously, Turkish language, uh, you would use Arabic script, Persian script. So the Islamic languages, the, the, the script of the Islamic languages. So they Latinized everything. So they took all of that out and put Latin. Uh, they started banning the Arab Qur'ans, the Arabic books of knowledge. Uh, they started um, uh, closing down madrasas, ending any new masjid projects. Uh, they made Hagia Sophia a museum. They um, started, uh, you know, taking out uh, Arabic from the Adhan. So the Adhan now became in Turkish. Uh, so completely taking uh, that out. Um, and even the Quran, like it wasn't even a good translation in, in, in Turkish. So uh, they're trying to influence the understanding of Islam through that as well because of uh, these poorly translated or these corrupted, you know, these uh, translations that were corrupted amongst uh, the uh, Turkish people. So there was a lot of like, you know, so whether it's economically, educationally, legally, all of these different things were now uh, affected during uh, and instigated by uh, Mustafa Kemal. And of course, formally ending the Khalifa, uh, you know, to to exist. And, um, you know, uh, uh, even the title of Sheikh al-Islam. So like having somebody as a, uh, a head for the Muslims to turn to, to get rulings and, and things like that. So tragic. What a tragic end to a beautiful empire that used to be the golden jewel of Islamic history. But when we look at history, when we look at things like this, we look at it as a whole. You know, as uh, Muslims, uh, we should appreciate that the essence of Ahl-Sunnah wa Jama'ah, Jama'ah uh, does not only mean that all the Muslims are together in one Jama'ah, but that we should always look at things holistically. You know, when the scholars, they talk about what Ahlul Sunnah Jama'ah means in all its different dimensions, we take all of the Quran and the Sunnah. So we don't pick and choose the Quran and the Sunnah and we have selective, uh, you know, memory and we have uh, a selective agenda of what ayat we use and what ahadith we use. We take all of the ayat of Quran. We take all the authenticated ahadith. We look at all of history and we learn from it. We look at all of the ummah, we look at all of, you know, the sahaba, and then from there we derive, uh, you know, the, the plan and prioritize and we understand things in a better way, right? So even though the Ottoman Empire ended in tragedy, 
one must not fail to remember that the way that the Ottoman Empire was established was because of a tragedy. The Ottoman Empire would not have been started if it wasn't for a great tragedy in the Muslim world. The greatest empire, the longest lasting empire would not have started if it wasn't for a great tragedy, a great fitna, a great calamity within the Muslim world. Genghis Khan, the leader of the Mongols, the Tatar, they started ravaging the Muslim world. They attacked Iraq, Eastern Asia, the 7th uh, century after after Hijra or 13th century uh, CE. And this attack led to half a million people from Western Turkestan to leave. So, for example, in year 1617 after Hijra, 1220 CE, uh, Zurgudai Noyen and Subutai Noyen, uh, they were either brothers or cousins. Uh, they led this army in Eastern uh, uh, or Western Turkestan, which caused a uh, migration, huge migration of uh, many of these uh, Turkestani people, one of which was a tribe by the name of Qay, okay, or Qabi. And they migrated, so they're escaping this brutality uh, from uh, the area of, uh, towards the area of Asia Minor, mm -hmm. which today is like makes up 90% of the land mass of uh, Turkey. So uh, this was, uh, or, and they're, they're escaping towards what would be present day known as Anatolia. Okay, so, and this group, this tribe is made of approximately 100 families, about 4,000 people. And it's led by a man by the name of Arthur Khorn. Okay, yes, you know, to uh, to watch Arthur uh, you can see him on Netflix, right? So uh, the same Arthur Gull, okay? Uh, and so uh, while, while fleeing, Arthur Gull and uh, his tribe, they witness a battle between the Seljuk Muslims, okay? So Sultan Al-Adin Qayqubadi, the first of Konya, and the Byzantines. And so... The Muslims were losing at this time. So the Seljuk Sultan Al-Adin, he's losing at this time. And so uh, imagine these people, they're, 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 they're refugees, they're migrants, okay? And they themselves are in need, but they see Muslims that are in need. And so he comes to the aid of Sultan Al-Adin. And, um, you know, he provides, the, you have a group of these 444 soldiers mm -hmm. uh, who help the Seljuk Sultan, and they help him bring victory and help defeat the Byzantines. And so, uh, you know, for me, this is like a core principle in Islam. Uh, and that is, if you see something wrong, you should try to change it. And this comes from the hadith of Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, on the authority of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, uh, he said, I heard Rasul Sallallahu saying, whoever sees an evil, let him change it with his hands, and if he's not able to do so, then let him change it with his tongue, Okay, you know, speak out against it, and if he can't do that, then at least minimally hate it in his heart, okay? And that is the weakest form of Iman, is just to like, to remain silent, not do anything, but just hate it in your heart. So at least minimally hate it in your heart, that's the minimum thing that you can do. So uh, here, here, here's a person who is in need himself, but uh, look at the metal of these people, the core values of these people, that even though they ran away from oppression, they see oppressed Muslims and they come to serve and help those oppressed Muslims or this, these Muslims that are about to lose this battle. 
So uh, the Seljuk Sultan, he was so impressed by this and uh, he realized that these people were also looking for a homeland. So he gave a portion of his land uh, between his empire and the Byzantines. So it was also a strategic decision because he saw them as being brave and courageous and warriors. So it almost acted like a buffer. Okay, so it's almost this area of West Ankara today, present day West Ankara uh, of uh, and it's a small area. So 2000 uh, square kilometers. Okay, he give this uh, he gives this area to them. So Arthur Hull Ibn Suleiman, he expanded this area uh, against many battle, battles against the Byzantines, and he expanded to, to 4,800 square kilometers. So it went from like 2,000, and he more than doubled it uh, through its expansion. And he uh, died in the year six, about 680 after Hijra, and he had three sons uh, at the age of 90 years old. You know, so he, he lived uh, quite a long life. Uh, and he uh, had a particular son who would now become the uh, man whom the Ottoman Empire would be named after. So his son, by the name of Uthman, was born in the year 606 after Hijra. Okay. Now, what's interesting to note is that his son, uh, Ottoman Empire, or in Arabic we would say Dawlat al-Uthmaniya, okay, so the Ottoman Empire is based, like, named after Uthman. So sometimes you'll see the Turkic version uh, of the name might be spelled slightly different. So instead of um, Sultan Muhammad al-Fatih, so they'll say Sultan Mehmed al-Fatih, right? So uh, Uthman, he was born in the same year that Hulagu, the Mongol, invaded Baghdad and killed and destroyed the uh, Khilafa, okay? The same time the Abbasid Khilafa fell. Uh, and this was, he was born in the same year. Imagine this, a man whom would be named after the greatest Islamic empire in history was born the same year as one of the greatest tragedies in his entire Islamic history. Wow. That year that, uh, Hulagu uh, sacked Baghdad, Ibn Kathir writes, they attacked the country and killed everyone. They found the men, the women, the children, and the elderly. And uh, many people hid in wells and rubbish bins and garbage uh, like dumps and grasslands for days, while others grouped together and locked themselves inside shops and masajid. But the Tartars, they broke in they, and they demolished the doors. They burning the the these stores and these fronts and the people inside. They chased uh, the fleeing residents and they slaughtered them on the roofs. None of them escaped except the Jews and the Christians and those who had sought their protection. So it was a massacre. It was a massacre. Uh, you, you would have people hiding in dead bodies. You know, they say one million people died in Baghdad, like the mountain of skulls that they would have, okay? One of the greatest genocides in history because it's not like they have, you know, modern warfare like we do today with, uh, you know, even with guns and bombs and whatnot to kill one million people is a huge undertaking. And so they had this devastating blow within the Muslim world, this, this nightmarish horror occurred the same year, subhanAllah, people didn't know that there would be a boy born 
that would bring hope and respect and honor and dignity to the Muslim world. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he tells us in Surah Al-Baqarah, uh, Ayah 216, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he tells us that it may be that you dislike a thing which is good for you and that you like a thing which is bad for you. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes on to say, Allah knows that which you do not know. At this ummah's lowest point, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought hope. And that's why it's important for us to appreciate something. Is oftentimes we don't believe something until we see it, right? So seeing is believing. But if you believe in the hope of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you have to actually believe in the unseen. So to truly see, you need to believe first. You need to have iman first for you to be able to truly see. Okay. Uh, and we see uh, in uh, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us indication of this, of like how these trials and tribulations uh, have a benefit. Even though it's so devastating, there's a benefit uh, in it that we cannot see, but we should reflect upon. Because if you look at history, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, now when you look retrospectively, you can see it afterwards. But at that time, imagine the iman that you would need to have to be able to see and believe in the promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So for example, in Surah Al-Qasas, Ayah 4, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Truly Fir'aun elated himself in, uh, in the land or elevated himself in the land and divided its people. So divide and conquer is as old as Fir'aun himself. It's as old as Shaitan. Okay? So divide and conquer, divide and conquer. He divided the people into sections so he could rule over them. He could maintain this iron grip. So truly Fir'aun, uh, he uh, elevated himself, he laid himself and divided its people into sections. Oppressing a small group amongst them. When you divide people, you're going to have your favorites, people you're going to favor, and you're going to people you oppress. Because you always want to play people against each other. And he slew their sons, but kept their females alive. So... Uh, maybe Fir'aun was the first militant feminist, okay? Next on Donahue, okay, I know that. Dated reference, okay? <laughs> so here, uh, uh, and then the ayah goes on to say, for he was indeed a maker of mischief. And then the two ayats, this ayah four, so the Qasas ayah five to six, he said, we wish to be gracious to those who are oppressed. Look at this, what Allah SWT is saying. He's saying, after Allah says that you were divided and you were conquered and uh, your sons were were killed en masse, so infanticide, okay? Uh, and uh, so he's causing this brutal oppression. Allah SWT is saying is to, to them, we wish to be gracious to those who were oppressed in the land, okay? To make them leaders in faith and mm -hmm. make them heirs to establish a firm place for them in the land. Their trial, their tribulation, the all you know, these horrors that they endured, all these challenges that they endured was to make them leaders. It was a tarbiyah process. It was a process of tarbiyah. Because for Allah SWT, remember, it's kun fayakun. Be and it is. If Allah SWT wants to bring forth something, it's very easy for Allah SWT to, to, to bring forth something. But if he wants the ones, Allah SWT chooses in, as in pleased with certain rulers, certain leaders, 
Remember, anybody can be a leader. You could have somebody who is a leader in in, in evil. And come on, let's let's be honest. Like, you know, after the star of The Apprentice can become like a world, a leader of the world's largest, you know, a country in the world, most powerful military in the world. Anybody can be a leader. Let's you know, let's 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 uh, understand that. Let's put that on the shelf. That anybody can be a leader, but the leader that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is pleased with is. Uh, uh, are those people who have certain qualities and characteristics, right? They have to be the antithesis of Fir'aun. So Fir'aun, if you, uh, if, we, if you look at his life from the Qur'an and the Hadith, he didn't have a tough life. He had a very, very easy life, okay? He had a very luxurious life. He had arrogance. He had all of these different things. The opposite of those that would succeed him, that would be able to overthrow him, uh, Musa al-Islam, Bani Israel, and you know, afterwards Yusha bin Nun, and all of these people from Bani Israel, they were able to overthrow him because they went through this tarbiyah process. They had certain qualities and characteristics. Okay, They went through a certain level of education and training to be qualified to be leaders and be leaders that Allah SWT is pleased with. Okay, so uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what he does with these trials and tribulations, he's giving you a training. And at the same time, to make the group that he will be pleased with, he wants to separate the people who are not an embodiment of this praiseworthy group. Okay, so he wants to separate them. In Surah Muhammad, Ayah 4, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, but if it had been Allah's will, he could certainly have extracted retribution from them himself, but he let you fight in order to test, test some of you with others. So he wanted to see, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he, uh, not, not that he wanted to see, but he wanted to show, that's a better word, okay, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows, it's in his alm, but he wanted to show the people amongst themselves who are true to their covenant, who are true to their deen, who are on the haqq, uh, not just speaking it, but it was uh, uh, the state in their hearts. Uh, he wanted to separate those people from those people who were fakers, okay, those people who were uh, just putting on a front, those people who, uh, you know, today have showed really nice social media profiles and show all this, uh, you know, these stances on woke justice. But if you were to meet them in real life, would they have the guts to stand up for somebody uh, who is uh, being oppressed, right? So, you know, I've given this analogy before, is that how do you know the metal of a person? How do you know uh, the true nature and the true characteristics of a person, what a person is truly deserving of until you put them through those tests. How do you know a piece of metal um, is different from another piece of metal that looks identical to it? Okay, the, uh, two pieces of metal could look identical to one another, but one metal maybe uh, has properties where it can resist crushing more. One metal has a property that it can re uh, um, resist uh, breaking under tension that it needs a higher temperature uh, to melt it under heat. So when under heat, it's, it's, uh, it needs a higher temperature, it can resist more, or it, that it's resistance to pressure. Okay, so it's a pressurized, it doesn't crush, it doesn't break. How do you know that until you test those pieces of metal? I can present you two identical pieces of metal. You would think they're the same until you test them. Until you test them. You know, you could have a, a basketball team that you could make all these cool promos for. So you you have this basketball team and you always show cool promos from them. You show like these highlights of people make, making every single shot, 
Okay, so these edited highlights and you show them walking through a slow motion through fog and getting into like these expensive sports cars like the players on the team and they're all wearing like the latest um you know the, I, I don't know what like um air jordans whatever you know crazy basketball shoe whatever crazy like you can make them look so crazy and every time they 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 tip off to do a tip off against uh, another opposing team the other team forfeits and so they're undefeated up until the championships and year after year they're undefeated so it makes no sense that they never went through any trial and tribulation how can you truly call them champions maybe on paper they're a paper champ but it doesn't mean that they're real champions right how do you know which one of those uh, players can play through pain that they get an injury, they can play through pain. How many of those players do you know are really truly team players that if they if they get under pressure, that they're not going to blame other team members and like uh, start cutting and running and you know causing dissension within the team? How do you know the qualities of you know who is a true superstar who truly works you know in practice day in and out? You know, yes, we're talking about practice, right? How many of them showing up for practice? So. How do you know that until you test it, right? Until you test those people. How do you know who are the winners, who are the quitters? And so Allah SWT tests people. Allah SWT tests uh, the ummah at that period of time. And Allah SWT tested Urdurghul. And Allah SWT uh, mm-hmm. tested this nascent tribe that was escaping. And what would they do now? What tests were they given? How would they pass those tests and what would be the result of this test? And that will give us some clues and that will give us an indication, inshallah ta'ala, of how this empire became one of the greatest empires in all of history. Not just Islamic history, but of all of history. So inshallah, we will continue this series uh, in our um, following podcasts because we are here to always try to spread the haq. Because remember, we live by the haq, we die by the haq. And just when you think life is stuck, tune in to Life Huck. Next week, we'll continue on the Ottoman Empire. Jazamakhir. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Do I feel that the New York police are providing enough protection or do I have to have protection of my own? I look for protection from Allah.